Let's turn together to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and it saddens me to say that that is the second to last time you're going to hear me say that. We only have one more week in 2 Corinthians, and then we'll be moving on. In fact, we're going to be kicking off our summer with this story of Hannah and Samuel, of Saul and David, of David and Jonathan, of David and Goliath. We're going to be in the book of 1 Samuel, uh, start the month of of June. And you got up early, some of you, maybe to watch uh, the royal wedding on Saturday. Well, we will, I see you wagging your heads. Well, we're going to be talking about the beginning of the royal line of the king of Israel. So that will be a really fun time together this summer. You can get excited for that. But um, our theme as we've been going through 2 Corinthians has been very simple. And it's these three words that we hear from Paul himself in chapter 7. Enlarge your hearts. Enlarge your hearts. It's an appeal from the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth. Really to all Christians who might pick up this letter and read it. An appeal for us to receive Paul as a minister of the gospel. More than that, it is an appeal from the God who has sought you out and who has brought you here this morning to receive not only Paul, but to receive the son that he has sent and the good news that's preached in his name. Enlarge your hearts. It's not an appeal to our mind. It's not an appeal to, uh, to intellectual assent. It is an appeal to the very core of our souls, to our hearts. It's love crying out to be loved. Paul writes in chapter 6, We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our hearts are open wide. In return, widen your hearts also. This letter is an appeal from the heart of God. A heart that God says, I have opened wide to you. Will you not enlarge your hearts? To him. So if you found 2 Corinthians chapter 12, let's turn to this book for our second to last time together. Let's stand together and receive the love of God through his word. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 11. I have been a fool. You forced me to it. For I ought to have been commended by you. For I was not at all inferior to those super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. For in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. Here for the third time I am ready to come to you, And I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls, 
If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Have you been thinking all along that we've been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I fear that perhaps when I come I may find you not as I wish and that you may find me not as you wish, that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many who have sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your patience. Continue to do works among us that will strengthen our faith. God, we thank you for showering us with your love. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would accomplish all your purpose in our lives in calling us to repentance and faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. As we've been reading in 2 Corinthians, and it's, it's honestly apparent uh, in 1 Corinthians as well, that Paul's relationship with the church at Corinth is very complicated. They're hot, they're cold. They love Paul, they're not so fond of Paul. They are following Paul wholeheartedly and then all of a sudden they find someone else they like a little bit more. There's more drama between Paul and the Corinthians, really on the Corinthian end of things, than uh, you might find in some middle school relationship. Paul writes in verse 14, Here for the third time I'm ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you. I think two words here in verse 14 just encapsulate the whole heart throbbing behind this letter. It's these two words, I seek. I seek. Seek. Throughout this letter, we have felt Paul's heart beating verse by verse, chapter by chapter. He is in a heart pursuit. He says, I am seeking. But more than that, I think we've felt the heartbeat of the Lord behind this letter. I seek. Not only is Paul seeking out the Corinthians, the Lord himself is seeking out these believers through this letter from Paul. And so as Paul wraps up his final appeal, these are his last words he gets to write to them before he's going to see them for a third time, we see three things characterize Paul's pursuit of these Corinthians. We see patience, pure love, and purpose. Patience, pure love, and purpose. So let's look at these three things each for a few moments. The first thing that we see in verses 11 through 13 
Paul demonstrates, number one, the patience of Christ. The patience of Christ. After everything that Paul had been through, we heard all about it. If you were here last week, the week before, all the things that Paul has been through, the whippings, the beatings, the imprisonments, the constant threat upon his life, city by city, the near-death escapes, his decades at this point of faithful ministry in the gospel, year and a half faithful ministry in the Corinthian region, not charging them a single dime after sending two letters, after sending protege after protege, the latest one being Titus, Paul should not have to waste his time. The last thing he should be doing is having to waste his time trying to convince the Corinthians that he is in fact an authentic apostle of Jesus Christ. And yet, even though Paul knew it was a foolish endeavor, even though it was a foolish waste of a man like Paul's time, with the utmost patience, Paul complied. Listen to verse 11 again. I have been a fool. You forced me to it. For I ought to have been commended by you of all people. You all should have recognized me for who I am. For I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. We recognize the first thing about this patience that Paul is demonstrating here is how foolish it really is. The pettiness of the Corinthian church is so, 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 so far below a man like Paul. He should not have to stoop to this level. He deserves so much better. I ought to be, if any, any church ought to be able to commend me as an apostle, it's you, Corinthians. Think about how foolish it made Paul look that his star church, his star pupils, now after years of faithful ministry to them, are still waffling about whether or not they want to receive him. How foolish that Paul even considered continuing to relate with these people after all he'd done for them. Not sending one letter but two. Not one visit. Not two visits. Now making a third visit. Why does he keep on pursuing these knuckleheads? This church filled with fools. Even though his patience with them is making himself look like a fool. Well, Paul here is demonstrating the patience of Christ Think about this. If Paul is made to look like a fool by associating with a church like the Corinthians, how much more foolish did Jesus Christ, the Son of God, look coming down to earth to be willing to associate with foolish sinners like us? With disciples like Peter, James, John, Philip. Think about how foolish Jesus must have looked bumbling from city to city followed by a group a troop of foolish fishermen, tax collectors, and sinners in his wake. 
Every time he turns around, it seems like James and John are trying to call down thunder upon and lightning upon sinners. Every time he turns around, he finds his foolish disciples arguing about who's the greatest among them. Every time he turns around, he finds them shooing away the children. They're losing their minds in the storm. They're deserting him when he's arrested. And yet, through all of those things, what do we see continually from Jesus? Patience. The utmost patience of Christ. And finally, when he could do nothing else for his band of fools, in his utmost patience, Jesus climbs up onto a cross, allows himself to be nailed there for our sins, hangs there between two thieves, and as we look upon him in his eyes, we can see the words, I have become a fool. You have pushed me to it. The patience of Christ. We're not only struck by the foolishness of this patience, but also the faithfulness of Paul's patience. He says in verse 12, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience. Indeed, signs and wonders and mighty works For in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. Day after day, I taught the gospel to you. Day after day, with the utmost patience, I proved over and over again that I was a true apostle. Day after day, I did the signs of a true apostle. Not just signs, signs. After sign, after sign, wonder, after wonder, after wonder, mighty work, after mighty work. And even while he's away, he's continuing to send laborers and letters to reaffirm what he's taught them. When the Corinthians are faithless, the Apostle Paul continually, in utmost patience, remains faithful. And it's because he's demonstrating the patience of Christ. We don't often think about it, but it must have gotten tiring for Jesus, town after town, day after day, to be swarmed with people who want to be healed, who have needs and problems that they need him to do some kind of mighty work or miracle. Here we go again. He's in the next city and they give him all their worst and say, fix our problems, Jesus. And yet we don't hear a single complaint from him. In fact, we see him healing the blind, the deaf, the lame. We see him casting out demons. We see him feeding the hungry, raising the dead. And what is it? It is a labor of patience as he demonstrates himself to be faithful day after day. Think about all the people who experienced Jesus' ministry who were healed, whose tummies were hungry and were fed whose ears were open and eyes were open and yet never believed. John writes in his gospel, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Think about his own disciples. What's the chiding that we constantly hear from Jesus, especially in Matthew's gospel? Oh, ye of little... Faith. 
Think about your own life. How many times have you started that walk out onto the water towards Jesus and then all of a sudden the storms of your life, the wind and the waves begin to distract your attention and you take your focus off of Jesus and you begin to sink into the water for the 500th time. You cry out to Jesus, save me! And for the 500th time, Jesus is willing to reach his hand out to lift you back up. And as he puts you in the boat, he wraps a warm towel around you and he looks you in the eye and he says, Oh, ye of little faith, why do you still doubt? The patience of Christ never wears thin. When we are often so faithless, he remains utterly faithful. When we are fools, He is willing to become the chief of fools for our sake. How long will you and I close our hearts to the Lord Jesus, who by His patience has thrown the doors of His heart wide open to us? When He came to this earth, He knew it was going to take a cross to win your heart. Not all the signs and wonders and miracles and mighty deeds in this world would ever convince you of His love. Only a cross. He patiently endured the cross, despising the shame, not scandalized by the foolishness it proclaimed. Will you and I not enlarge your hearts in view of number one, the patience of Christ. As Paul makes his final appeal, the second thing that comes into view is the pure love of the Father. Not only the patience of Christ, but secondly, Paul demonstrates the pure love of the Father. Look with me again at verse 14. Here for the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you. Paul here is communicating his pure love for the Corinthians and he's doing it in a relational way. And what is the relationship that he, he, he uses as a metaphor for the way he relates to these believers? Look at the second verse of chapter 14, uh, verse 14. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. Paul sees his relationship with the Corinthians as being like a father to his children. His pure love is relational and he sees his love as a father to his children. I didn't charge you money, Paul says. I didn't burden you because I'm not a huckster, a charlatan, a TBN evangelist, a politician, or a celebrity. I'm your father. Fathers don't rob their children. Fathers don't want their children's money or their children's possessions or even their children's good works. That's what a super apostle is after, Paul says. But a father, a father is only after one thing. A father is after his child. I seek not what is yours, but you. That's what I'm after. That's what I'm chasing. That's what I'm pursuing. 
The love of the Father is relational. How often do we try to give things to our Heavenly Father in order to keep Him at arm's length? I'll give you my Sundays, God. Just leave me alone the rest of the week. I'll give you $100 every week if you'll just leave the rest of my life alone. I'll even give you my prayers. I'll give you community service. And the Father pushes past all that. Because He says, I'm not after what's yours. I'm after you. God has demonstrated on the cross that He will be satisfied with nothing less than having all of you. He sent His Son, the Bible says, to purchase you as a ransom. Do you understand how a ransom works? Somebody kidnaps your child and they send you a ransom note and you pay that ransom. You don't get your child's shoes back. You don't get your child's wallet back. You don't get a weekly visitation with your son or you don't get a couple of phone calls throughout the year. You get your son. The Father paid the ransom on the cross so that He could have you personally as His child. He doesn't get a $20 bill every Sunday. He doesn't get you every other Sunday. He doesn't get a prayer conversation every couple of months. He gets you. That's what He's after. And just think about the cost that He's willing to pay. He was willing to give His Son in exchange for you. He's willing to hang His only begotten Son on the cross so that you could become His. That's what the love of the Father is after. To get you. And you get Him. Paul shows us what the pure love of the Father looks like. It's costly. Look at verse 15. It's costly. I will most gladly Spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? The Corinthians, when they got to chapter 8 and 9, and we might be tempted in chapter 8 and 9 to think, okay, we now know what Paul's really after. Our money. He just wants us to give to his giving campaign. He's going church to church. He's trying to collect money up. That's why he sent this letter. He just wants our money. No. It is a demonstration of the pure love of the Father. Paul says, do you not realize who it's really costing in this relationship? I'm the one being spent. I'm the one gladly spending myself for you. I'm the one pouring out my whole life for you, Corinthians. That's the way fathers feel for their children. They feel this kind of continual, never-ending responsibility to pour themselves out, body, soul, and everything they have for their children. Thank goodness for the Corinthians that God in His providence gave the Corinthians this kind of father. A man like Paul, willing to pour out his life, to be spent and to spend himself day after day, Pouring himself out, emptying himself of all but love. And praise be to the Father that he didn't shy away from this kind of costly love for us either. 
God shows his love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? The cross was only the beginning. The cross was only the beginning in our relationship with the Father. You and I will never find a Father so willing to pour out everything for us Every single grace and gift whose cup of blessing never runs out. Who waits for us to wake up in the morning so that He can shower us with new mercy and grace. Before we move on to our final point, I want to point out one more thing about the pure love of the Father. And this is what blew the Corinthians' mind. They just could not grasp this truth. It's unconditional The pure love of the Father is unconditional. They could not conceive of Paul just loving them for the sake of loving them. Okay, Paul. We grant that you didn't charge us anything while you were here with us, but we still cannot believe that you don't have some kind of ulterior motive. That you're trying to weasel something out of us, you're bamboozling us, and we haven't figured it out yet, but we're going to find it. Look at verse 16. But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Well, did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the exact same steps? Paul's saying here, I know how impossible it may seem, but my love for you really comes with no strings attached. This is the problem. No one can conceive of this kind of unconditional love. Love for love's sake. Loving a person simply for the pure joy of freely giving yourself to them in love. Not because they make you feel good. Not because they deserve it. Not because they have something you need. Not simply because you want them to love you back. Simply loving because it is in your DNA, your nature as a father to love sinners. Paul says, didn't you feel this love from Titus and the other brother that we've sent? Uh, this, This unconditional love is not some kind of pipe dream. It's real. It's the love of the father that I'm demonstrating to you in my own life. The Father loves us for love's sake. He loves loving us. And that's why He does. Not because we can give Him something. Not because we fulfill something in Him. There's no other psychological mumbo-jumbo to explain it other than this. That God loves loving us. And that's why He loves us. The Father's love is unconditional. And He says to you, If I love you more, and more and more every day. Will you love me less? You see, the pure love of the Father. In Paul's pursuit after the Corinthians, we've seen him demonstrate, number one, the patience of Christ. Secondly, the pure love of the Father. And lastly, this morning, number three, the purpose of the Spirit. 
Paul reveals the purpose behind every word that he's written in this letter in verse 19. Look at it with me. Verse 19. Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? Do you think that's the purpose of this letter? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. Do you want to know the Spirit's purpose in your life? Do you want to know what the purpose the Spirit is trying to accomplish in you through 2 Corinthians and what Paul has written here? Paul knows what it is. It's all for your upbuilding. That's what Paul says. He says, I call God as my witness and Jesus as my word that everything that I am writing to you, everything that I do is for building you up. Beloved. And that word there, beloved, is not, is not some throwaway kind of Christianese. This is what love seeks to do for those that they love. To build them up. It doesn't tear down. When Paul reminds them of the gospel, it's for your upbuilding. When he talks about his ministry, it's for your upbuilding. When he explains the new covenant in Jesus Christ and the reconciliation we have in him, it's for upbuilding. When Paul says, enlarge your hearts, we've opened our hearts wide for you, it's for your upbuilding. When Paul encourages us with the demonstration of the church in Macedonia and their generosity, it's for our upbuilding. When he calls us to be cheerful givers, it's for our upbuilding. When Paul defends his ministry and he talks about everything he's endured, it's for our upbuilding. Everything, it's all for your upbuilding. And Paul willingly debases himself and makes himself a fool for us. It's for your building up, all of it. This is the purpose of the Spirit. This is what the Spirit was sent by the Father and Son to accomplish in our lives. To build us up. Well, what does this upbuilding look like as we finish? It looks like continual repentance and faith. This is what the Spirit has come into your heart to accomplish. Building you up day by day through continual repentance and faith. And that's what Paul closes with in these last couple of verses. Look at verse 20 with me. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish, that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity sexual immorality and sensuality that they have practiced. Paul says, my greatest fear is that this letter will not accomplish its purpose. Its purpose in the Spirit is to call the church to repentance and faith. Paul's worst fear is that there are, quote-unquote, Christians devoid of this Spirit Christians who know better but have no interest in doing better. Christians who are aware of their sin but have no interest in repenting of that sin. This is what was so devastating about the people of Israel in the Old Testament. You see, the nations, all the other nations, they didn't have a law. So they sinned. Of course they sinned. 
But God gives the people of Israel the instructions. Here's what you do. This is what I want you to do. They had the law. They knew the true God, etc., etc. And they sinned. And then they looked at the law of God, which told them they were sinning. And they said, eh, I don't care. And I have no interest in changing. The Spirit's purpose is to bring us to repentance. Look at this list. Which of these do you see in your life? Is there quarreling going on in your relationships and in your home? Are you filled with jealousy of others? Are you constantly angry and hostile towards the people in your life? Are you slandering, talking about others behind their back and with whispering gossip? Are you conceited? Are you full of yourself and puffed up with pride? Is there all kinds of disorder in your life? Is there disorder in this church? And further down, Paul mentions impurity and sexual immorality and sensuality. Is that what's filling your mind and your heart? Is that what you're meditating on and allowing to consume your thoughts? How on earth can the Spirit reside in a heart where you're treasuring those sins? I can tell you one practical application of Paul's letter to the Corinthians, the second letter. Not this stuff. (laughs) So if this is the stuff that's happening in your life, Paul is saying the Spirit's purpose is to determine and find that stuff and to cast it out. To help you to repent and turn back to God. The Spirit is taking this letter of Paul, confronting you in your sin, and it is your job to repent, turn away from that sin, to trust in the Lord who has abundant, and has had and will continue to have abundant patience with all of us when we are so often wayward and faithless, and to return to the Father who loves to receive back prodigal sons and daughters. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this word from our brother Paul. We pray that it would accomplish its full purpose by your spirit. Lord, we thank you for your patience with us. We pray we would not test your patience by continuing in unrepentance and sin. God, we thank you for your love, which is not based on anything we can do but on your pure nature as a God who loves us unconditionally through your Son. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.